0: You are listening to Rank and Vile, a proud member of the Greenlit Podcast Network. Hey guys, welcome to Rankin' Vile, the podcast where we are ranking every single horror movie ever made. And on this episode, we are joined by author Matt Wallace.
1: Ryan, I'm thrilled to be here. Can I just say that? This is my favorite horror
0: podcast. And absolute thrill to have you on I, I i feel like with rank and vile we've been looking at ditch diggers from like across the high school cafeteria for a while <laughs> being like ah oh, jeez, those are the, the those are the cool guys they're the ones that do the cool now i want
1: to know which lunch tables we're separately sitting at because i don't feel like either of us is at the cool table I don't think that's a thing.
0: No, yeah, no. Honestly, what it is, we're both at the cool table, but we've both got like paper bags <laughs> over our heads, so we don't actually know that there are other people at the table.
1: That sounds like a really interesting, like kink themed restaurant. Right,
0: which also factors into one of the uh, movies we're going to be covering uh, later on in this episode, which uh, prominently features a gimp suit. Um, but before we get into all of that, Matt, uh, a question we like to ask our uh, guests who are on the podcast for the first time. What is your background with horror? Like when you were growing up, were your folks cool with you watching horror? What was how did you come to it?
1: <laughs> My folks were way too cool with me watching horror movies. And that's something that we will get into specifically talking about. The movies that we're gonna talk about on this episode. Mm -hmm. I was shown things at ages no no child should be exposed to these things, (laughs) right? Nice. Um my grandmother had this epic VHS collection.
0: Oh Um, man, that's the that's the good shit right there.
1: Oh yeah, no, and I just didn't I didn't even understand how special it was at the time. But like we lived out in the desert, like Mm -hmm. by North Shore by the Salton Sea. If you don't know what that is, it's okay. It's just desolation. It's oh fuck. Crazy.
0: So you were you were you were desert folk by this point.
1: Oh yeah, we were we were hardcore desert folk. So we had eventually we got an enormous satellite dish that literally needed a concrete cement base to sustain it. So we would we started to get media that way, but before that, it was just all VHS tapes. So my grandmother over time, living out there, had just assembled this entire wall, just shelves stacked full of VHS tapes. And looking back on it, that was it was just a miraculous collection. I've no idea what happened to it. I lost touch with the side of the family, but so if it came out on VHS in the eighties, we saw it. And that included Mm -hmm. horror, you know, that included Nightmare on Elm Street and Jason and everything. Actually not so much Jason. Definitely, Friday, definitely uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, but not so
0: much Friday the 13th or something. Same, actually. Yeah, like, with Friday the 13th, like, I, I I didn't watch any of them until, like, way later on, because early on, like, my, my, my family also had VHS tapes, uh, but the one that scared the shit out of me the most was the cover for Nightmare Part 5, oh, Dream yeah. Child. And it was the old school one with, like, it wasn't, like, the cool, like, abstract to blow that's, like, last temptation of Christ with, like, the floating heads and stuff. Right. Um, it was just Freddy Krueger, like lurking over the bassinet oh like, with the
1: jacked up art yeah oh my god that was, was horrifying oh
0: my god yeah it was fucking amazing and it was also yeah like that was one of those movies where i was not allowed to watch the dream child but as a kid you know you're just like looking at it and he's looking at the camera right doing a shoosh motion and it's just deeply upsetting when you're a kid um, so for you, like, what was the movie early on that like blended your brains?
1: I, I, I mean, The Howling is very distinct in my memory at an early age because I remember watching that with my cousins uh, who were from Catalina Island. So it was always like a big deal when they came and, and visited us. Uh, I remember us watching that, all watching that, at way too young an age, and just there were breasts, so we were you know out of our minds as, as small. And yeah,
0: tall. I mean, like the intro takes place in like a porno theater, right?
1: It does. It absolutely does. And like they, they show you exactly what's going on in the movie. Like it's it's hardcore. <laughs> yeah. and,
0: and you're like, I am eight, this is fine to <laughs> be watching for me an eight-year-old. This is yeah, but, This is perfectly fine.
1: I mean, the thing is you you forget that that's like Joe Dante horror comedy or supposed oh, to be. Oh, for right? sure. That kinda of, that, that's kind of encapsulated my relationship with a lot of 80s horror because Even if it was supposed to be tongue-in-cheek, I was so young viewing it that I didn't get any of that. I just got the horrific aspects of it.
0: Yeah, completely. Well, and, like, with Joe Dante specifically, like, Gremlins scared the shit out of me when I was a kid because, like, they were mean, they were my height, and could easily reach me, and they were not my friends. Uh, And, you know, you had that feeling where, like, I shouldn't be watching this yeah. And, like, yeah the, it was
1: really. You forget. If you don't revisit that one for a while, you forget how hard they went in Gremlins.
0: Oh, yeah. Like,
1: the mom in Gremlins had her own, like, mini survival horror movie.
0: Oh, she really did. Movie. Honestly, it was the. Yeah, she was. I kind of put her in the same category as, like, Spielbergy and, like, the, the mom from Poltergeist, who. Oh, absolutely. You know, she's yeah. maintaining. She's got her own shit going on. She's, like, fascinated by the whole thing. You know, she's, like, holding her own, and she's yeah. got stuff to do, goddammit. She's just trying to get through this. Um, so an- another question, uh, what ghoul shit uh, so obviously as we record this, we are, uh, in the midst of the, the coronavirus pandemic, uh, and forever and ever, amen. Um, what, what weird ghoul, uh, holes have you fallen down, uh, recently?
1: Oh man, I mean, the most recent hole, and I think we talked about this off when we weren't recording, but I, I mentioned I've been on like a really deep dive into '80s uh, sword and sorcery stuff oh, with, yeah. a, with a subtag of barbarian Conan the Barbarian ripoffs that kind of permeated that whole genre, which gotcha. definitely crosses into horror. Every flick in some way or another, I think, did that. that oh, was, for sure. That rode the line of so many different genres, but yeah, I've been going through all of it. Man. Like I started with the mainstream stuff. Like I watched Conan the Barbarian. Like I watched Dragon Slayer. Which is still a fucking awesome movie, by the way. Like, yeah, I, I mean
0: it's called Dragon Slayer.
1: If you, oh man, dude, seriously, like you, that's that's one that has to go in your brain because I haven't watched mm-hmm. that since I was a kid, and it holds up so well from like almost every aspect. Like oh, there isn't there right. isn't even any. Like, Yeah, there's nothing cringy or, like, rapey about it, which is very rare for for 80s sword and sorcery movies, Oh, yeah,
0: for sure. Well, especially because if it's, like, capital B Barbarian, you're thinking of, like, Tarnsman of Gore a little bit, where it's just, like, that that aspect is just front and fucking center, you know? And I feel like you're expecting it almost? Yeah, you kind of have to be. And, I mean,
1: it's just, they Mm -hmm. deconstruct that to such a level that it... It almost, it, you, you kind of become numb to it in a way. Not in just that it's so horrific you eventually become numb, but they take it to such a place where it's so absurd. It's sort of mm-hmm. like how um, uh, man, I'm blanking. How can I blank on the name? Uh, Verhoeven. It's kind of like how Verhoeven makes his violent so cartoony oh, that yeah. you almost stop reacting to it on a, on a level of watching violence.
0: Well, yeah, for sure. And especially with Paul Verhoeven, you know, you're he sort of, these aren't even actual bodies for him. Yeah. Like, they're just sort of a canvas for Paul Verhoeven to explode.
1: Yeah, it just, it, it goes beyond the membrane of being horrifying and just being so ridiculous at that point. And it's, it,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, just completely fucking gonzo. Um, Barbarian films, I almost have this thing where, I, I think it's the, the Italy connection for me, where it's not a one-to-one, but I feel like the sword and sandal movies of the 1970s are like the jalo film right. to later on like barbarian films versions of slashers like it provided the foundation of the thing and then later on you know the sorcery movies just kind of took that and took it as far as they possibly could
1: yeah they took they really just like pasted frisetta over that model you know just yeah wrapped the whole, yeah like they took that literally which oh, was completely. all of them and they all had the frisetta covers i remember like i was watching uh death stalker which is beyond awful that's one that oh yeah. hold up even remotely well but i remember when i was a kid that one had the poster where it's like the muscle barbarian and then there's this huge like really cool ogre that's like got a woman hostage and he's fighting the ogre and the ogre is like eight feet tall with this you know monster pig face and i'm like and nowhere in that movie does anything even close to that happen because they could not yeah. possibly afford to bring that to life in the movie it's <laughs> such a lie it's a lie on its face <laughs> And the weird thing about that was I remember being a kid renting that, uh-huh. and I rented it multiple times, Not really, kind of almost refusing to believe that if I watched it enough, I wouldn't finally see the monster that was in the poster. Like, even right. I wouldn't believe that they would put that on the poster – and not put it in the movie but they did not it was lies. such a, they were those movies were lies all, were of them. Lies, all lies honestly
0: for me you know what it was was the the cover of dead alive with the skull in the mouth
1: right yeah of. with
0: just fucking like listen they never made good on it and and as a kid i would see it and just be like how did that lady get that skull in her mouth like is it a very small skull or a very big lady and you're doing like a lot of like childhood <laughs> math to try to figure this out Very upsetting. Uh, So let's... Goddamn. Let's dive into the movies we're doing for this week. Uh, We are doing a double feature of Wes Craven. Uh, So we're doing Shocker from 1989, and also The People Under the Stairs from 1991. Uh, Let's get into Shocker first, because this movie... It is one of those movies that while I'm watching it, I kind of can't believe that it actually exists and I'm watching it.
1: No, in retrospect, absolutely. And that was literally an attempt to create a new Freddy Krueger. That's what they were going for.
0: Oh, for sure. And yeah. and especially by this point, you know, Wes Craven is still sort of salty about like the assassination of his series by the coward Bob Shay, you know, and all those crooks at New Line and he he was, you know, But then he goes right back around and goes like, you know what? I don't need New Line Cinema or Freddy Krueger. I can make my own new Freddy Krueger from scratch. And even from the opening sequence, it's literally the Freddy Krueger constructing his glove intro to the first Nightmare film, where it's a guy with a bad lamp futzing with TV?
1: Yes, it literally is the Radio Shack version (laughs)
0: of
1: that scene. Which is very of the time, though. Especially that late 80s, early 90s. You started to get into, like, the tech stuff. You know, you were just a few years away from every horror movie was about virtual reality or, like, Ghost in the Machine or whatever, including Ghost in the Machine, which literally...
0: Right, right, which, you know, it's great, you know, it's uh, exactly what it says on the tin. Um, But what's incredible about this movie to me is, like, so when you describe the pot of Shocker, all right, so I'm going to draw a comparison here and I'm going to say something and see if it's true. Uh, this movie to me is like from Dust Till Dawn in the regard that it's like the people making it were making the plot up as they were going along. <laughs> like, you you write it on paper, right? And you look at it and you're like, from Dust Till Dawn, like, okay, so there's these brothers and one of them's creepy and they kill someone, but then they go to a bordello and then there's fucking vampires that pop out. And Shocker is like that to me where it's like, you've got so much stuff in the mix. We've got body jumping ghosts we've got dream travel we've got satanic rituals we've got electricity powers we've got amnesia backstories we have ghost girlfriends it
1: really is a yeah it is a grab bag i see the parallels there i I'll, but while i kind of see from dust till dawn is almost charmingly episodic in how it throws out because mm-hmm. because from dust till dawn it's like one thing happens and it's self-contained then another yeah. thing happens that it's self-contained, and then by the end, they've stacked all this stuff together. Shocker is just everything in a blender all at once. There's, like, no structure to how they're hitting you with stuff. Yeah. It's like you said. It's like, yeah, yeah, by the way, ghost girlfriend. By the way, you can dream travel. By the way, you can also travel between televisions. It's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's
0: important to diversify. Honestly, the more I think about it, From dawn kind of sounds like a D&D campaign. Yeah. <laughs> Like, they're just... It's just, like, plot stuff popping up, and the the DM is just trying to throw them curveballs just to make sure that the players don't know where it's going. So the plot of Shocker... All right, so... We start out, at, there is a guy, he wears a lot of hats. He is a serial-killing TV repairman named Horace Pinker, played by uh, the immortal Mitch Pileggi, who uh, I knew entirely as Walter Skinner.
1: Right, as, as most people did.
0: Yeah, just the the X-Files connection, which is, I love, by the way, the online contingent of people that really wanted to fuck Skinner. <laughs> Like, I remember back in the day, like, there was a Yahoo, like, Usenet thing with, like, the, the Walter Skinner uh, Estrogen Brigade. Wow. Um, and they were out here. Like, it was just women who really wanted to touch Mitch Pelleggi's bald head. And God bless them for it. I mean, he's he is really hot as Walter Skinner. Um, so Horace Pinker, who is basically Mitch Pelleggi tries. No, no.
1: <laughs> I give Mitch Pelleggi all the credit in the world. Like, he's there. He's present. Yeah. Like, he's, he's going for it. <laughs> Is this visible. isn't. This isn't like you know. I had to pay the mortgage or keep my SAG card. This is mm-hmm. like. This is a shot I have at becoming Robert England. You know, he knew. Oh, that. for sure, he knew what was going on. He's a working motherfucker. He understands the game. So a working, actor. he's in there doing everything he can with that character, and it, he hits moments. He really does hit moments within that thing. Oh like, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: No, definitely, and especially like he'll he'll get a line occasionally. Like a lot of the dialogue in this is sort of like a uh, Malto Meal Bag cereal Freddy Krueger dialogue from one of the later films, because obviously you know as Nightmare went on, Freddy is just he sort of became Bugs Bunny.
1: Yeah, a parody of himself really.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, like Freddie said, the final nightmare, which, by the way, I fucking love that movie because it's one hundred percent just like the franchise eating its own legs <laughs> and just self detonating. Love
1: that movie. I, I, I have a complete unabashed love for.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah completely. Ra- Rachel Rachel Talalay is god. Um, but with Horace Pinker, like you, you know, he'll he'll do a, a line reading where like he'll bite a guy's fingers off and sort of like goon for the camera and be like, finger looking good, <laughs> and he's. It's a lot, you know? Um, so when we start off, he's like, uh, Horace is like killing a family, and there's a local football player named Jonathan who is, I would describe him as Himbo Prime. <laughs> like, he is just, he's, he, John, he's well-meaning, dumber than Soup, he is doing his best, he is horny all the time, and he has no idea where he is. I will
1: never come up with a description for anything better than that, <laughs> or more dead-on. No, no played play by the Eternal Peter Berg.
0: Oh, yeah, he's here.
1: Is for his part trying as well. Albeit, I'm not sure as hard. Uh, but trying in his way. <laughs> no, but I mean, hey, that's one of those things where yeah. I, when you really look, at, if you really want to deconstruct Shocker from like a screenplay craft standpoint, mm-hmm. they did not give him a lot to work with. No, no, no. Like no. he's literally a, a, a white dude football player named Johnny. His name might as well have been Johnny America. Like he's that generic. Yeah. He. He's a vehicle for yeah. things to happen to. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like he—he he is the bland vanilla ice cream upon which you can sprinkle some Mitch Peleggi. And what's incredible to me also is that he looks like he's wearing a Party City costume labeled "White Guy" parentheses with hair, <laughs> um, and he. And it's great because you get these scenes of him it's it's a lot of Wes Craven dialogue where like, you know, he'll be at football practice and he is confused and erect and like looking at his girlfriend who's sitting off in the bleachers, and the coach who by the way this coach i feel like he's in the top 10 movie coaches
1: oh easily that probably my favorite character in the whole movie
0: yeah yeah honestly it's it's incredible because he's like 100 percent just busting this kid's chops for being distracted and horny this entire football team weirdly invested in johnny's sex life i feel <laughs> like like everybody's got to weigh in on it man uh it's it's weird it's it's incredible um this movie does put a lot of weight on this kid to carry the film.
1: It does. It absolutely does. And it's not its not the role that you're going to hang. Uh, it's not the tentpole. It's not a tentpole character. Oh, no. It's not no, It's no, not really no. a support strut for this thing.
0: <laughs> no, yeah. We, we don't really uh, know about the further adventures of Jonathan from Shocker after Shocker. No, he,
1: oh, he wouldn't have made it to the sequel.
0: Absolutely. No. They would have no. brought him
1: back. Like, if this had actually become a franchise he would have come back in, like, number six when they needed the Nostalgia Factor. Oh, it would have yeah. just been Mitch Pelleggi and a completely new cast of people in the second one.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And even Mitch Pelleggi, I'm, I'm kind of... You, you remember how in um, a Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, initially, Robert Englund was like, according to New Line, like, asking for too much money or whatever. And, and Bob Shea in The Bob Shea Boys was like, fine, fuck him, we'll, we'll find someone else and put him in a rubber mask. Freddy Krueger could be anybody, whatever. And then they brought on some dude on set, and he was just, like, doing Frankenstein motions. Right. And they were like, oh, maybe we had something special with Robert Englund. Yeah, that's, that's,
1: a, that's a very that, that is a very 80s kind of mentality, before you realize actors mattered They were still Uh, hanging on to that B movie conceit of like, you put anybody in the fucking rubber suit. What difference does it make?
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, who gives a shit? Roger Corman. Um, Honestly, I just picture uh, everybody on Shocker, like, off camera yelling at Mitch Apology, like, more like Robert, do it more like Robert would do it. Like, he's just, he's working so hard to make this work. The romantic leads in this film, I. Do not. What is her name?
1: Allison is Allison. the is Peter Burger's girlfriend. Played by Camille Cooper, who I remember most from a uh, Digital Pictures live action CD-ROM game in the early nineties.
0: I am fascinated. Tell me more about this right now.
1: It starred Corey Haim. Uh, <laughs> I believe it was called. What's it called? Double Trap. It was something about That's an on. old hotel, and there were. It was one of those games where you controlled cameras and traps, Ooh. so you could go from room to room voyeuristically watching what was happening. And the goal was to trap bad guys in these elaborate Bugs Bunny booby traps. Oh, man. And I just remember... That's the only other thing I remember her from, sadly. She was very good. But, yeah, that's that's the reason I remember. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And as a kid, you know, I was I had a huge crush on her.
0: Oh, yeah. Which, by the way, Sega CD is still very impressive to me. <laughs> like, as... Because, like, I had a, you know, sort of a, a workman-like Sega Genesis at the time. And the kid down the street from me had a Sega CD. And at the time, I was like, oh, goddamn, he's got it like that? Like, his parents can afford the Sega CD, you know? Like, I'm... I'm a grown adult in 2020, and I'm still like, oh, putting on the dog.
1: No, you do. Those things do get ingrained in your brain. Like, even long after they become obsolete, they will always be symbols of fanciness and entertainment. <laughs> yeah. Like,
0: yeah. You're Completely. Still, like,
1: you're, still, like, you're pushing 40, and you feel like, I could just get a Sega CD. That's what's going to bring it all together.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, one of these days, I'm going to turn it all around. I'm going to make so much money, I can buy a Sega CD and a Betamax. I'm going to be the <laughs> fucking coolest guy in Los Angeles. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'll get a 32X add-on for my Sega CD. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck.
0: Uh, so, all right. Okay. So, this... So, Johnny and Allison, the thing is, these actors are both doing their best. I have had more chemistry with a meatball sub.
1: Yeah, for sure. Than they, than they have. They look like they just met that morning.
0: They did. They
1: did. And... I don't know if there was an age disparity. I don't know if I don't know how old mm. Peter Berg was at the time. You know, this is this kinda tracks into another thing that when I was younger always confused me about that movie. Mm-hmm. They don't really make it clear how old Johnny is in the beginning. <laughs> they like don't. eventually I parsed out that he was in college and a college football player, right? But yeah. That was the
0: point. Yeah, honestly, I thought for sure he was in high school. Like you know the thing with high school students where they cast actors who are like thirty-five, and they're like, "Yes, I'm Johnny seventeen. Absolutely, and that's
1: one of the reasons it's confusing because he looks like he's in his thirties, but then he also lives yeah. by himself in a cabin in the woods.
0: Right. Well, you know, so- he's a he's a very rugged sixteen-year-old. Th- Thirty-five year old. That's what
1: was really confusing me. I was like, if because it looked like he was in high school. I thought that's what there was. I'm like, if he's in high school, why doesn't he live at home? With, why does he live by yeah. himself in a cabin in the woods? Why? I wanted that level of independence for myself. I was more asking these questions from an investigative standpoint. I was like, mm-hmm. how do you get the cabin in the woods being a kid in school? Because I want that. And with the with the oh yeah.
0: The Lazy Boy! <laughs> the Lazy Boy! That was the dream. You could eat as many Hostess fruit pies and drink as much Mountain Dew as oh, you yeah. want in your Lazy Boy. Santa can't see you. God isn't there. It's just
1: me and mine are eating WWF ice cream bars. <laughs> you know, the old school ones. On yeah, the
0: side. yeah, with the on the side. Yeah. Yeah. Honestly, like, that's the thing is also, this movie is so late 80s excess to me, like, it's somehow so much more less than the sum of its parts, but also more than the sum of its parts for just being an example of why eighties horror at this point had no clue what it what it was going to do with itself. It needed to die. Like this movie was throwing everything in a blender and putting a mega death cover of No More Mr. <laughs> oh, nice Guy over the top of oh, this song. The song was so good though. How oh, could you not love this song? <laughs> What do you mean I'm not Alice Cooper? And that was and, and
1: that was the tagline too. No more Mr. Nice Guy was the tagline. Yes, the tagline was no. also the title of the signature track for the movie. I forgot about that until oh right now. Oh my god,
0: that was the tagline. But that's my question, why is that the tagline? Who was like, Oh, I think this horse maker guy's pretty nice. I don't know, like I'm used to, I'm used to No, no, no more Mr. Nice Guy. He's not fucking around anymore.
1: Yeah, no, he starts out as a serial killer and ends the movie as a serial killer. There's yeah. no real transition point. Yeah, in no, there, no, no progression. Where he's there. just had enough of all this yeah. nice serial killing. He's going to do some really mean serial killing now. He's going to close and give you a body dysmorphia by making a personal comments before he kills you and take it to another level <laughs> out
0: Exactly. Now he's just going to be super fucking aggro. Like before, he was like, hello, it's me, Horace Pinker. I'm going to murder you. And now. He's just going to nag you the whole fucking time about your outfit, about your life. Um, <laughs> Jesus. So, a Horror Speaker kills the shutout of a bunch of people. It's pretty unremarkable the way he kills them. Yeah, he doesn't really have a thing. I mean,
1: he kills whole families, so... Oh, that's fun, yeah. That's kind of the deal.
0: He, at least he's got that going for him. He hits reply all a lot <laughs> on his murders, I think. Like, he just... He does it in bulk. He just wants to kill whole families. And... He eventually gets uh, taken in because Johnny, who has been interacting with him in dreams,
1: he's been interacting with with the crimes mm-hmm. in dreams, and the whole and the whole tie in is it starts out because Pinker kills Johnny's family. That's how he becomes involved. Right. But before he kills Johnny's family, Johnny sees the killings and is actually there, present uh, yeah. for the killings, and can interact with Pinker in dreams in the dream state, even though he isn't really there. Mm-hmm. Which. I don't Witch. remember if that was, if there was like, if that actually happened or it just happened for him. But he couldn't, out, he couldn't like alter the outcome. It wasn't like a Bran Stark thing. He couldn't go back no, and change yeah. anything. He just saw things that were going to happen from an active standpoint in the dreams. And also, you find out really early that this family was his adoptive family, and that becomes important later on.
0: Oh, yeah, that's in the mix. So his adopted family, his dad is a police detective who always, every scene, this guy looks like he just rolled out of bed five minutes ago, and he's disoriented. <laughs> he doesn't really know what's going on totally. He knows there's murder, Like probably has to tackle a guy, uh, but past that, he's kind of out to lunch, so he's just, like, b- bewildered at all times. Um, the... So, Pinker gets taken in, and they fry him, but what's incredible is that they find Pinker's sort of serial killer compound, which is like a, like taxidermied animals hanging from the ceiling, which you want, I think. You know, classic, timeless. Um, there's, like, black magic shit all over the place. The plot thickens, right? So, you're like... Okay, well, it's the late 80s, we're still kind of easing out of the satanic panic by this point, but there's still some fucking juice left in that puppy. I think we can still get something out of that.
1: Yeah, it felt very much like they were tra- almost like they were trying to predict the next thing. Yeah, you know, it's like producers are like, you know, what's coming next is these th- these kid Satanists, these D&D players mm-hmm. who worship Satan. They're out here. They're gonna start going electronic, man. They're gonna start <laughs> not quite digital, but analog electronic.
0: That's what's you know what, though? That kind of tracks with a lot of the extremely online people I know. In the <laughs> people <laughs> in <front> of.
1: <laughs> so what we've learned is that the producers of Shocker were prophets. Yes. They were
0: actually right about everything. Yes. They they completely, they predicted everything. They were the Cassandra of shitpost culture. Although, side note to the side note here, um, I love Wes Craven with my whole heart, and I think he's my horror dad. Um, Definitely. He's, he's wonderful. But... You know, he was so tender and so thoughtful, and this is the guy who did fucking Last House on the Left somehow, but also, I don't know, like, it's incredible. Here's my question, all right? So, my partner, Christina, uh, once asked me, like, what do Sean S. Cunningham and Wes Craven possibly talk about as friends? Like, what was the, because, you know, in terms of levels of thoughtfulness... Wes Craven, everything he does has like five layers. He's an ex-Divinity student and he's got all the stuff that he wants to talk about and like, yeah, you know, like when I was designing Freddy Krueger, I chose red and green because the eye can't really process them together and, you know, he's just, everything is sort of planned out and thoughtful and Sean is Cunningham, and the entire Friday the 13th franchise is like, what if a guy, he get you with a axe? <laughs> And he jumped through a window this time go, ah, you know, and it's like every new movie is like, what if the big guy he on boat now with knife guy and jump through with an uh, axe? And, you know, and I feel like Wes Craven is always doing something. No,
1: absolutely. Wes, I, I, I would call Wes an artist uh, without hesitation. Very thoughtful. He yeah, mm-hmm. and, I, and I agree with that sentiment. I have always thought of him as, like, my cool horror uncle. You know, that's For where sure. it comes from with that. But yeah, they were... And I wonder if that ever bugged him, or if it just rolled off as the whole the whole kind of Jason mm-hmm. versus Freddy thing. Oh, yeah. Even though they really have nothing in common with each other from any thematic sort of angle, <laughs> other than they kill young people. Like that's the one unifying theme. But other than that, they're completely Right? More. Yeah. I I don't know. I don't know if he just waited for Cunningham to like finish describing. Oh, this is how we're going to kill him this time, and then he would say a bunch of thoughtful stuff, and Sean would just be waiting for him to finish so he could tell him about the next kill idea that he had. <laughs> <laughs> and they weren't
0: yeah yeah like wow you're really going for like a sins of the father thing here <laughs> and you know he's like he's, he's trying really- to go with that. and then Seanus cunningham's like yeah so anyway so on this one we stabbed kevin bacon through the throat from under the bed and that's like the depth of fucking thought we're working with here i don't know what No, you
1: I, I just want a podcast where Wes graven intellectualizes sean cunningham's kill oh, scenes oh yeah and tries yeah. to give them context and like existentialism. That's awesome.
0: <laughs> you know what it's like? Is it's like that uh, on NXT when they were starting out? There was like the meme about how Regal on commentary would try to give descriptions of moves that you know try to elevate them. And it's like, you see, the the terrifying thing about the worm is that when Scotty to does it, he builds up the <laughs> centrifugal force of the worm so that when he drops that chop on you, he's gathered. You know, he's just he's giving as much. Yeah, information I was to say that part. was
1: a sick Regal impression. That was impressive. Thank
0: you. Thank you. I, I've never attempted it before, and I'm terrified that I'm going to listen back to it and be like, oh, I'm deleting that shit. Well, show. that makes,
1: it, that makes like, it even more impressive, Ryan. That, that was stunning.
0: <laughs> Jesus. I, Regal's, Regal's perfect. So, so all right. So, he gets fried. Hanker. Executed, yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's, he is, he is a, a cooked hot dog. They do the whole bit, right, with the electric chair. But then things get... <laughs> A little hinky because before he gets dragged out to get uh, put in old Sparky, he for some reason he got like a big TV put into his tiny tiny jail cell. He
1: requested it, if you'll remember. This is a this is an amateur uh. outline, all right. This was a tight screenplay. <laughs> it is made clear yeah. that that was his one request, as he wanted a television right. in his death row cell. Commentary. So that thing just come out of nowhere, all right.
0: Is this like Wes Craven trying to make like cheeky commentary about people being addicted to TV and like for my last meal I want my MTV? Possible,
1: sort of thing. but but considering the fact he only wanted the TV to perform TV voodoo so he could live forever, right. I feel like that kind of <laughs> deflates the metaphor. <laughs> Unless, That's, yeah, I don't know.
0: Well, so so my question is: so he asked for the TV. Where did he get the fucking candles for this <laughs> ritual? Like he is just full on Frank Cotton and Hellraiser, sitting crisscross applesauce, surrounded by candles in his wow. jail cell. It's so much, uh, and so he's calling out to what, like Satan or the powers that be or the like the TV gods and just like. And that a voice from the TV says in like a like a Troy McClure from The Simpsons voice, like "You got it, baby." It does. doesn't it,
1: it doesn't it also become like a pair of like Rolling Stone cover lips. Yes, like electronic yes. lips that come out of the TV, three D style. Wow! And tell them you got it, baby, or whatever. You got
0: it, baby. <laughs> like it's so. It's so awful. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. It's so bad. And so Wes Craven has the nerve to get pissy about some Ray-Bans <laughs> on Freddy Krueger. Like, Wes, please. We're men of science here. Let's 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 cool it a little bit on on Freddy Krueger being yeah. a little much. Um, so Pinker gets fried and he's able to we find out that he's able to jump persona style from body to body at this point and possess people. Uh, and they all have to do their best. Mitch Peleggi doing Robert Englund. Yeah,
1: this is where this is where, right? And the movie goes off the rails a bit.
0: <laughs> then it gets weird. Yeah,
1: because Mitch disappears for pretty much the whole second act. Mm-hmm. He's not even in it, except as like an electronic ghost shadow that crawls from dead body to new body host. Right. Which... Right. Also, can we just talk about how nonsensical this whole setup is? So. <laughs> The idea is that he made a deal with the electronic gods or an electronic demon right. to have this power to jump bodies, but the jumping body's power isn't based on electricity in any meaningful way. He just kind of jumps from no. person to person, so does it make him an electronic entity that can like use the natural electricity in a human body to conduct itself?
0: Because I can almost get
1: there. I can almost get there if that would have been in the movie. But I just think they
0: didn't really think about it. Oh, they definitely didn't think about it. Well, and you could sort of go, like, you know, sort of a Cronenbergian, like, well, you know, technology, it's inevitable that it should come home to roost in the human body because it's an extension of the human body. And, you know, everybody out there watching all the MTV video games, you know, like, maybe the cathode ray has become part of the human body or something. Like... I don't know. I'm overthinking. See, it. no,
1: no, no. I think you're onto something. Because this, I just realized Shocker is a movie you want to give Cronenberg. Yes. That's who needed to make yes. this fucking movie. Absolutely. This would have been on another level.
0: Oh, if my God. Cronenberg
1: has got, has got his hands on it. 80s Cronenberg, especially.
0: Oh, yeah. Like, it, I, David Cronenberg's Shocker would have been perfect. Um, is this like a spiritual a- ancestor to Existence? Possibly.
1: It could, it could be a trilogy, really. You like, start with Scanners, you go to Shocker, and then you get <laughs> to Existence in the end of it. <laughs> I think it could be. Oh, that is fuck. wild. Yeah. yeah,
0: it would have been. It would have been incredible. Well, and, and so you know, we sort of get a game of cat and mouse between Johnny and Horace, where uh, I don't know. Why I'm calling him Horace, like you we're friends, or Pinker. Uh, you know, like my my buddy, the serial killing TV repairman, Horace. Um, big H. Big H. Big H. Uh, he. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that's his. That's his stage name. Um, for appearances. He is sort of just possessing bodies and fucking with Johnny. There's a bit I always love, which is children cursing. Um, Yes,
1: at one point he becomes a little girl. I forgot about that. Yeah, and she's like Bitch.
0: Um and you know it's it's always it's always great. It's always great, uh, and so they sort of at one point as the movie progresses, Johnny and Pinker are chasing each other through the TV channels.
1: That's the big denouement, though. That's at, that's finally at the end, which oh, also great. just comes out of nowhere. There's no setup for the. For, <laughs> you don't have any notion that could even be a thing in this world. Mm-hmm. There's no rules. Why not? No rules whatsoever. But oh, the other thing we forgot about. Right? Again, the the level oh, no. of tightness, the full tightness of <laughs> the script. Peter yep. has a limp. Lean. Oh yeah. He forgot about the limp. Oh. That's how you know when he's in a new body because the <laughs> new body affects the limp. That's like the calling card.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's his entire character beat. Is it's his signature move is having the limp, which you find out uh, is because Johnny uh, has amnesia, uh, from when he was a kid, and his mom was, like, dating Horace Pinker?
1: I don't remember the particulars, to be honest with you.
0: Yeah, yeah, I, and, and so a tiny Johnny, like, shot Horace Pinker in the knee to get him to stop, like, beating on his mom or something, and so, whatever. So we fast forward, and Pinker has a limp, and Johnny has totally forgotten about it, um, and so, yeah, so you can always tell when he's possessed somebody by when they are dragging their leg behind them.
1: Right. Which, I mean, credit to him, it didn't impede his serial killing. You know, he, <laughs> he worked with that.
0: True. Inspiring.
1: You can, listen, you can accuse Shocker of a lot of things. You cannot accuse Shocker of being ableist. No. I'll just say that no. right now.
0: It's, listen, he's achieving his dreams uh, as a TV repairman slash serial killer slash TV host? <laughs> Of a kind like he okay so the scene in this movie that okay so before i ever watched it recently the main thing i remembered from this movie um aside from that megadeth cover right. which is very important uh is a bit where they're chasing each other through the tv and they emerge through some family's tv set and they're still chasing each other and the dad of the family looks at the camera and goes i've heard of audience participation but this is ridiculous <laughs> Like, <laughs> hi, hi, Wes, great. Like, this is this is him getting his shit in. You know well, what I mean? Like, this was, he wrote that line in the script and just, like, took, took the day off, I think.
1: Well, the, the thing to me, man, it's just, like, that by that point, and that's, like, the third act, that's the big final battle is them jumping around movies and TV channels and shit. That is oh, a yeah. cartoon. That is a straight, there was nothing remotely yeah. serious or, or mm-hmm. even particularly exciting about it, but it's just, it becomes a, a live action cartoon at that point. And it's really wild to revisit the movie for me because, again, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I saw this movie at a way too young of an age. And I remember Shocker as being incredibly scary and disturbing.
0: Oh yeah. That's
1: my that was my original I was disturbed by this movie. There was so much disturbing shit in this movie. We didn't even get in the scene with the coach when the coach dies in the shower and he gets taken over by Pinker, and he's trying to resist Pinker and not kill Jonathan, because even though he's gruff and he yelled at him earlier, he secretly loves Jonathan. Yeah. And Pinker killed Ted Raimi and hung him upside down in the closet. Unbelievable. That shit traumatized me as a kid. And then I look back on it now, and it's like, they're chasing each other through TV channels, and there's a war movie in the background, and they're bipping each other on the head, Mm -hmm. having a fucking fist fight. Oh, yeah. Because that was Peter Berg's big plan, is like, I'm going to enter the TV world and punch him really hard, (laughs) despite the fact he's twice my size.
0: The perfect crime. Like, I'm just going to punch him until he forgets that he's electricity. And that's, yeah. You know what, though? I buy that plan from Johnny, who... God bless this character and this actor, he also looks like he always just left the stove on and he's trying to remember if he did. Like, he's just like, I'm just going to show up and punch Horace yeah. Pinker in the face. I mean,
1: that's, that's kind of Peter Berg's acting style, truth be told. But I mean, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah. Honestly, like, in terms of horror chops, this movie does have some genuinely upsetting beats.
1: It does. It's this, quiet. it has this quieting moment. So I, I still feel a little disquieted about it. I don't know if that's that's the nostalgia I attached to it or that first experience. Mm-hmm. But there's some genuinely genuinely eerie stuff in there. We didn't even get in the whole ghost girlfriend thing. Oh, like boy. Pinker kills his girlfriend at one point, she comes back as a ghost. And yep. he's not even happy about it at first. He's freaked out. Which I appreciated. I appreciated the fact right. that he wasn't immediately happy to see her. He's just like, Oh fuck, it's un it's the undead. Cut her head off. You know, like <laughs> it was a reaction you could understand, because she had been brutally murdered and here she was, all of a sudden acting all calm.
0: I mean, yeah, like, well, especially because she, uh, that girlfriend. I feel like the movie—it's sort of an informed love that the movie is like. So anyway, they were crazy about each other. They've base- basically been married. Nuts,
1: nuts about each other, and that's what makes it even better. When he's just like through the rest of the movie, like, get the fuck away from me, you weird ghost lady. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's it's a lot. Now, all right. I don't know if we're giving this movie enough credit on some level because the way it's billed is that it's a black right. comedy. Like it's Wes either taking the piss about Freddy Krueger or Wes trying to make some cheeky commentary about horror or about media consumption. I could
1: I could honestly believe either. Like I could see that being true. I could see Wes trying to make a commentary, a very specific commentary, and setting out to do what he he planned to do. Mm -hmm. I could also see it being that they looked at this thing and posted what they ended up with and went, like, marketing has got to lean into this, or we're going to get fucking roasted. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Like, we just got to go with the fact that this movie ends with Peter Berg defeating the killer with a remote control, (laughs) at which point he fast-forwards him and makes him run into the wall and run into the ceiling and shit, again, like a cartoon. Oh, So I, I don't know they came to the whole dark comedy thing later or if it was built into it.
0: Right. Know? Like, they might have just been trying to save face a little bit. Like, it's it's like The Room, you know, like, where later on Tommy Wiseau was like, uh, yeah, because, like, he would go to screenings of it and people would laugh at it. So it's like, it's a comedy? Like, I, the thing about this movie is that... Yeah. I don't know. Nobody in this movie knows what movie they're in. Absolutely. I right. think. Like, nobody... I don't know if it's just, like, a problem with the actors or with the writing or if it's like, oh, shit, we're in a Wes Craven movie. We've really got to, like, put some English on this performance, right? Like, we've got to really, you know, show our chops. We've got to really do this. And it's just... It doesn't quite work because the movie is ridiculous like first of all it needed rules i think definitely it needed it's kind of calvin ball right like the pinker's powers and jonathan's powers the interaction of those things like the rule of this world like it's not it's not really an established framework
1: yeah and everything just contradicts everything else like if there's ghosts why the fuck didn't he just become a ghost why is he doing the whole tv <laughs> right deal thing like, did he eventually... I don't remember if they... he Because they, they do interact, though. Pinker, yeah. so Pinker, post-death Pinker, electronic Spectre Pinker, interacts with the ghost girlfriend. So I always wonder, like, why didn't he see her and go, Oh, fuck, that was an option? Why didn't anybody <laughs> tell me? I could
0: just come back to yeah. the ghost. Yeah, like, that was... I've, I've, I spoiled for the electricity package. Like, I'm a third of a Freddy Krueger. I could have just, like, signed yeah. on and clocked in. I could have just... Um, It's a lot of stuff. Like, I almost wonder if it's, like, the thing I did in life is the thing I do in death now. It's like, I was a TV repairman. That's my backstory. (laughs) And, you know, it's like with Freddy Krueger, you know, he, according to different, like, backstories, he was, like, a janitor or a custodian or a lawn guy or just general blue-collar worker. He's not coming out with a mop to kill people. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't have custodial nightmare powers. Pinker being an electricity demon, like... (sighs) Yeah, yeah. But I mean, it is a movie called Shocker. It has that cover and that tagline and Dave Mustaine. I love this movie and it's garbage. No, that's,
1: I couldn't put it better myself. I have nothing but fond memory and actually some very deep emotional reactions tied to this movie. Mm -hmm. And no matter how ridiculously it ends up or how nonsensical it is when you step back from it. It's definitely part of my canon. I, yeah. I, I have seen it dozens of times. I didn't really even watch it before we did this episode because I just <laughs> have seen it so many times. I didn't right. really see the point. I'm like, ah, I got, I got shocked.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I, yeah I, I think you were right to do it, especially because, like, so much of the movie is like, is it a good movie? Absolutely not. Is it a great movie? Yes. Uh, yeah. Like, it's so much the thing it is. and And it's, yeah, yeah, I fucking love this movie. Do you want to rank this movie?
1: We can we can try. We can certainly try. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even yeah. know where you where you put it at the end of the day. also <sighs> like which what's the context?
0: Yeah, well, it's because it's either number one or for horror value, where like you're getting as much horror shit crammed into this movie as possible, or it's at the bottom of the. I I, I don't know. I don't know. All right. So looking at the list right now, I'm okay. So- I'm going to ask a silly question. Which is a better horror film? Shocker. Or saw at number one hundred
1: and two. I mean, I'd have to give it to Shocker, man. I I'd yeah. have to do it. I know, I know, I'm probably going to get hate for that. If maybe, it, maybe it's a generational thing. Oh sure, but you know, you know what though?
0: I don't, I don't see a lot of people caping for Saw. So you know what? Fuck it, fuck Saw. <laughs> I don't give a sh- I don't give a shot it in there. Yeah, Fixing yeah. History. I feel, I feel, I feel good about that. You know what though? I feel like I've seen that movie so many times, and it's one of those movies that. <sighs> It's completely joyless, and I feel like Shocker. It may be wrong about what it's doing, but it is never in doubt. You know? No.
1: Every, yeah. Absolutely. It has the. It has that self confidence that counts for a lot. I think. And everybody's there. I mean, we, I mean, we talked about that, but like mm-hmm. everybody showed up for that thing. Like they're they're in the moment. They think they're making something huge. And you oh can yeah. Tell, and they're going for it. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Everybody involved in this is like swinging for the fences. Um. So looking at the list a little bit at number fifty. We have Tammy and the T-Rex, <laughs> which is, all right, so which is a better film, Tammy and the T-Rex, about a, an animatronic T-Rex that gets possessed by the ghost of a teenager, or Shocker from 1989.
1: I, you know, I have to go Tammy and the T-Rex just by benefit of the, of the T-Rex. T-Rex yes, yeah.
0: It's good. It's a good T-Rex. Yeah. It's a good problem. Yeah. It's a prop so good that they literally built a movie around having gotten access to a prop.
1: Which I respect. I get that. Coming from an indie film background, I totally get that. It's like, we have these resources, what can we make around them? You know, it's the old school Robert Rodriguez, El Mariachi mentality. It's like, I have a a turtle and a bulldog and a guitar case, let's tell a fucking story.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I'm a rebel without a crew. I'm not a rebel without a giant animatronic (laughs) T-Rex. So, you know, like we we can yeah, yeah. So, I'm going to switch it up a bit. At number 65, we have Mulholland Drive. Oh. From 1999. Um which is a better movie? Mulholland Drive <laughs> or Shocker?
1: I mean, Mulholland Drive.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. I, yeah. There. I feel like David <laughs> will find out if I speak ill of Mulholland Drive. And he won't mm-hmm. care. That's oh no. The, he no. He will not give a fuck.
0: Yeah. He'll be perfectly nice about it, but it's like, well? You know, there's room enough for all kinds of folks.
1: As long as you're not watching it on your fucking phone. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: every every fucking time I watch like something on Shutter on my phone, I can just feel him hovering over me and being so sad. Every
1: every time, every time I watch anything on my phone, yep. I, I think of David Lynch as is only right and fair.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so too. We've we've disappointed him. So looking down the list a little bit. Uh, at number 69 nice we have creature from the black lagoon
1: no oh, classic
0: yeah yeah um i feel like i want to give the edge to creature
1: kind of have to kind of have to like i love that whole series mm-hmm. you know I could, I could yeah i could go off on that whole thing. yeah it's perfect so yeah that's that's i definitely creature creature gets the nod there
0: yeah and you know it spawned a generation of monster fuckers so True. nothing 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 bad about that um so looking at the list a little bit, okay. In terms of slapstick horror at number 77, we have Reanimator.
1: Oh man, another classic!
0: Yeah, god, that's yeah. so yeah. So I feel like I want to give the edge to Reanimator just because. Cause I feel like Reanimator is a movie that is more purposeful about the weird Gonzo slapstick horror shit it's doing. Like, Shocker is also completely fucking nut bars, and I feel like Shocker ends up doing that where Reanimator goes for it. Oh
1: yeah. yeah. Like,
0: Jeffrey Combs knows what movie he's in. Like he's he's showing up every day knowing exactly what he's doing. And Mitch Pileggi, God bless him. He's trying. He's not dead. No, yeah. (laughs) Like, he's... God bless him. He's... Yeah. So I feel like I want to give the edge to uh, Ranimator. All right, I'm going to pitch an idea. Sure. I'm going to say something that might be bossing me. Um, At number 81, we have the movie Phantasm.
1: Oh, man. I
0: kind of want to give the edge to Shocker, and I'll I'll tell you why. Shocker is actually a movie (laughs) in a way that... And I love Phantasm very much. Um, It is... 90 percent atmosphere it's like a potemkin village of a horror movie right like it's got you know all of the actors are clearly visible uh there are effects you know but it's you've got the cool score and all that stuff but it's it's not a movie
1: yeah it's more like a horror snow globe like a really beautiful one (laughs) but yeah you know you shake it and the and the stabby ball comes out and it's cool but it's that's that's the experience it's it's encapsulated in this one thing it doesn't really take you on a narrative journey.
0: No, no, no. Yeah, for sure. And so I I feel good about putting Shocker uh, at number uh, 81 right above Phantasm.
1: say book it yeah i like it yeah i feel
0: i feel pretty good about that so yeah so all right let's uh let's dive into the people under the stairs
1: yes let's because it is a very again Wes craven and one of the few intelligent things uh joe bob briggs ever said was Wes craven really does best when he deals with houses and there's a lot of wisdom in that
0: oh jesus that man that's heartbreaking when he actually says a smart, true thing.
1: I know it's tough. It's tough to deal with. I, oh, man. I, we could do Damn. a whole episode on my complicated past and relationship with Joe Bob Briggs. Right? But that is one thing he said that still holds. Yeah. That holds up. Yeah.
0: Which, side note here, I feel like Joe Bob Briggs is something that you can only have a complicated relationship with. Yeah. As, like, a lifelong horror fan. Absolutely. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh. So, Wes Craven dealing with houses, right? So, this movie... Okay. Also, uh, while we're recording this episode, we are uh, in the midst of, obviously, you know, nationwide uh, protests about police brutality and institutional racism and systemic racism and black and brown bodies being uh, sort of abused by structures that are that are meant to control them. And it's a lot, it's a lot happening. And Wes Craven, I feel like he is pretty good about that shit in this movie. Oh moment. no,
1: yeah, I, I, I... And this is and this is one that I feel like every choice in this movie was intentional. Yeah, you know, it's the exact opposite of Shocker in that way. Like I don't.
0: <laughs> yeah, definitely.
1: I don't feel like it's an accident that the lead character is a young black boy. I don't feel like anything that, that any way this movie was constructed was unintentional. Like this is yeah. this is a microcosm, particularly in in any in any urban setting, of what of the white supremacist power structure and what it does to people and fighting back against that. And there's just yeah. no way that any of that was unintentional. No, yeah, like, I, I
0: think that was absolutely in the mix. And also, it blows my mind that this was only two years after Shocker. Right. <clears throat> like, that's that's insane to me. Um, so, all right, so this movie is about white landlords who need to get their fucking houses burnt down. Um, so the bad guys of the film are, uh, it's Big Ed Hurley and Nadine from Twin Peaks. Yep. It's Everett McGill and Wendy Roby as inbred uh, landlords who are rich and also their ancestors like generationally like their ancestors bilked people out of coffins it's a whole thing yeah they originally their family ran a funeral home
1: and stole from the dead it's like a whole thing and they have mm-hmm. no names right and like how de- like, consider that layer nameless, oh. exploitively. <laughs> that's
0: oh. Con, oh, oh contraire. They do have names. It is Mommy and Daddy. Yeah, they,
1: oh, God, that was so... that's still creepy. Ew. That's still... they, they call lot. each other that, is, is the point of that. No, no one else is calling them that. No one else is calling them <laughs> Daddy and
0: them. No. Yeah, yeah they're, they're making this happen themselves, which I love that because, like, my my grandparents always did that, where they would call each other Mommy and Daddy that always creeped me the fuck out. Like, even when I was a kid, like, what? That's not your mom, dude. Like, what? What are we doing? That's your wife, Grandpa. That's your wife. Like, you know, because obviously you have kids and they call... Uh, but this movie does a really good job, I think, of milking how upsetting that is. Yeah,
1: it, re- it gets to the core of it and just... Oh. And also, that, I, that idealized white person perception of the 1950s, because that's really what these characters are. Yes. They're that... Absolutely. Yeah, that old school good Christian uh, separate beds, but they've got, you know, kink gear in the walls that nobody sees. Mm -hmm. Like, it's all underneath the surface, and on the top, they're perfect. Right. Like, it's very much a commentary on kind of being stuck in that mentality, particularly for old white people.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And it's also, I think, for the time period, it's also, I think, a big riff on Reaganism. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Where, you know, you've got the sort of Norman Rockwell family... And it's the idea of sort of mainstream America. So the plot of People Under the Stairs is that there is a young black kid named Fool who is, his family is getting evicted because the, what, his mom is sick?
1: Yeah, his mother's very ill. Mm -hmm. They don't have any money to pay for surgeries or whatever it is she needs. And the landlords are trying to kick everybody out so they can basically go condo. If not that specifically that concept. That Mm -hmm. concept like run to everybody else they can knock down the building. Sell the land and make
0: millions of dollars. Yeah. Which side note, it takes place in Los Angeles. Um, as somebody who lives in LA right now, this is basically just a documentary uh-huh. about what's been happening in Los Angeles for decades and decades. Um, so he finds out from his friend Ving Rames, who is here. He, Ving Rames is in this goddamn movie. <laughs> he is making moves. Goddamn. He is. I get so I can't not giggle and clap when he's on screen. You can't.
1: You really can.
0: Uh. Yeah, he's just—he's perfect. He's perfect. Um, and Ving Rames and another guy um, have a great idea, which is like, you know what, you got to pay triple your rent or else you're going to get evicted. So what we're going to do is, uh, you know, me and the guys thought it would be a cool idea if we went and broke into the landlords' houses. And just fucking looked for their hidden hoard of gold like their big fucking treasure island stash.
1: yeah, they're literally supposed to have gold like that's they've mm-hmm. stolen all this gold and it's stashed somewhere in this compound of an enclosed <laughs> old creepy apotheosis of a of a creepy house.
0: ah uh, yeah, this house like honestly, here's the thing now fool, I would die in a battlefield for fool. he is as movie kids go, I think he's in the top for me.
1: Absolutely, one of the greatest protagonists of all time, in my opinion. Like, mm. I, I there were a few characters I identified with, or like were more of an avatar for me than than in this movie. I, well, that's why I watched this movie obsessively when I was a kid.
0: Yeah, like he, man, and Fool's is incredible because he's kind of like wise beyond his years, and you know he's tougher than shit. Like he, so there's a there's a bit in the movie where they find out. That Mommy and daddy, which actually I'm just gonna call them the bad guys because it makes my fucking toes curl. Yeah, really.
1: It's very skin crawling., oh, it's, it's so upset and it's well done because it's still thirty years later for it to still have that effect is very impressive..
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and also, you know, and and so uh, so Everett McGill and Wendy Roby, who were obviously on you know on Twin Peaks at the time, um, that thing of how nobody in Shocker knew what movie they were in, these two know what goddamn movie oh, yeah. <laughs> they are in making this like every yeah yeah every time they kill somebody they both dance around like old-timey prospectors like literally like ever
1: mcgill is dancing around (laughs) wendy roby going i got him 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 with a big shotgun i mean just brutally murdered someone oh man just Filled with child like Lee, and he's just this hulky mountain of a man. Yeah, which- he's a
0: tall drink of latex gimsuit in this fucking movie.
1: Yeah, no, he absolutely yeah. And again, he's got the crisp nineteen fifties aesthetic, the trousers are high, the mm-hmm. shirt is pressed, the hair is wet and slicked back, like yeah. it's like a bit, it's like a pituitary Elvis. It's just that's <laughs> you know, it's like if you it's like if you merged it's like if you merged. So <laughs> like if you merged uh, Kylo Ren and Elvis. That's what you. That's what you.
0: Oh said. Jesus! Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Well. So it's. So the thing is that when it's just. The way that he acts when it's just him and the other lady at home together, like they're kind of just weird, giggly little rubes together. Mm-hmm. Like, but what's incredible is the way they switch it up because whenever the cops come by or they're talking to anybody else, they are pure Norman Rockwell. They're just oh hello, officer, how's it going? And they're just you know able to provide the illusion of being like you know good, upstanding Americans. Wendy Roby is a virtuoso of making scary faces.
1: Oh god, so good. In She's this, so good. That performance, they both are, but Wendy Roby is like at another level. Like, yeah, she, she inhabits that character, and it is a difficult fucking disturbing character to it, oh And I give her all the props in the world for that performance.
0: Definitely. And it, it's like Kabuki, almost. Like, I think the only other performance I can think of that this reminded me of was Amanda Plummer in So I Married an Axe Murderer.
1: Oh, yeah, I can totally see the parallel there. And the actresses, yeah. too, similar styles with that kind of character.
0: Yeah, 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 definitely. And she, so what we find out in the movie is that uh, this family, the Robesons, You know what? Actually, there we go. There's a better collective name for them, so I don't have to call them (laughs) their their names. The Robesons. And so they have this big fucking house, and what you find out is that in the basement, the titular people under the stairs are kids. It's neighborhood kids and kids from neighborhoods nearby. Not only are they fucking this community over by for closing on them and evicting them, they are literally stealing their fucking kids.
1: Yeah, they've been on the quest to find the perfect... Not even son and daughter, like the, um, AJ Langer describes it as the perfect boy child they've been looking for. Just to make, again, yeah, just to make it extra fucking creepy. Not, they're not even looking for the perfect son, they're looking for the perfect boy
0: child. boy child.
1: Another important thing to note is when you say community, they do not live in the community they exploit, which I actually think is another very important kind of point and metaphor with itself. Yes. They're in this old money huge house neighborhood miles from the tenements that they're sucking the life out
0: of. Absolutely, But
1: yeah, they've been taking kids and when the kids don't measure up. And again, you find all this out because in addition to the people under the stairs, they have Alice, who is A.J. Langer, who is their girl child. Again, not even their daughter. (laughs) Oh, God. The perfect girl child. And she's the perfect girl child because as she explains in the movie, she neither hears, sees, nor speaks evil. They even have little porcelain statues with that... Embossed. It's kind of like the motto of the house. Yeah,
0: family crest. Do you think they make Hallmark cards for girl child? (laughs) (sighs) Jesus. And so their whole thing is see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Right. And so anytime one of the kids steps out of line or is a literal child who does stuff, or... or.
1: Yeah, they saw something they weren't supposed to see. And I like that implication that it's like they saw them do messed up stuff. And that was enough to get them banished yeah. to under the stairs. Like, they didn't even misbehave or anything. They just witnessed the atrocities that these people commit, so they had to be banished.
0: Absolutely. And this was a, a yeah. sin on their part somehow. Like, they were outsourcing it. There there are no winners here. Uh, and so, now, the basement is full of children who are sort of, you know, penned up and with, like, boards. And they're all kind of just squished in down there. I am so impressed by the world building in this movie. It feels like a whole oh world. Oh, my
1: God, man. It is... It is. You could not. You cannot find a better example of how to build a self-contained world than that house. That house yeah, yeah. lives and breathes in every aspect of it. You know, there's the whole mm-hmm. world within the walls. There's one of the kids that, one of the boys that got away, that escaped. Roach. Roach. Uh, played by Sean Whelan, who you recognize if you saw him because he was in everything in the '90s. <laughs> right. Uh, he was the, the he was the Aaron Burr kid in that movie where he's got the peanut. Uh, the commercial where he's got the peanut butter in his mouth. And he can't say Aaron Bird, remember that, yeah. But anyway, he's in the walls. Uh, he escaped from the basement, but he can't make it out of the house. Right. And you totally buy that because this house is hermetically sealed. They have like tripped yeah. out and rigged this house with soundproof windows that you can't break. All the doors are on mechanical locks that are all controlled from like central points. And you know, you totally buy that. There's a scene where Fool is literally banging on the window. Trying to yell to get the cops' attention or whatever, and they shoot it from the outside of the house, and no sound is coming through. You you wouldn't even notice them if you were if you were at, at, on the sidewalk in front of the house, right? And you totally believe that it's a self contained environment, this world that they have created, that they have this godlike control over. You totally buy it. It's so yeah. totally beautifully done.
0: Yeah, like I buy it. I buy it completely, and it, it's it's so good. And the way it's shot, like I don't know how much actual set they had to work with here. They make it feel fucking expansive and infinite like they just make it feel like this labyrinthine just huge 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 thing um and so this movie so much of it is wes craven gesturing at america and going this is that like you've got you like poor children of color locked up in a basement and shitty inbred generationally rich people at the very very top who control everything and destroy communities. Yeah, and
1: the only way to survive them is to see, speak, hear nothing that they consider evil, and they get to make the rules of what that is.
0: Yes, know? it's incredible. Like, that, you can tell that they... So, like, aside from dropping the N-word with a hard fucking R in this movie, yeah. which is certainly in the mix, there's almost, like, the Robesons, it's almost like they've got this Annie Wilkes thing of, like... It's almost more unwholesome, the, the fact that they don't curse because we think that's bad, but, you know... That actually tracks when I think of people online who are cool with children being locked up in cages, but very upset if you say fuck.
1: Oh, absolutely. I love that. I love that they have that kind of puritanical uh, sense of morality that doesn't apply to any of the awful shit that they do. Oh, yeah. It's just this again, it's all that surface level stuff. It's the propriety, it's the veneer on top that they want to keep nice. In. And cleanliness is a big deal mm-hmm. with Winnie Roby's character. Like, she's all about everything has to be clean and neat and organized. And if you don't, I'm gonna fucking burn you with scalding bathwater. Like it's Oof. just, it's yeah. awful and amazing at the same time. Oh, how bad do you feel for AJ Langer in this thing for Alice, the daughter? It's
0: oh so this terrible. poor, this poor fucking kid. Like honestly, now not to not to get too into it, but uh, as somebody who grew up in an abusive household, like watching this as a 33 year old, my throat kept closing up anytime this kid was getting, mm-hmm. you know, laid into by Wendy Roby. Like it is fucking hard to watch and harrowing and i kind of can't believe that it came out two years after shocker
1: i mean no, like the thing is i totally can though because yeah. i think that was Wes rebounding from what he from what he knew he went through with shocker even though right. that was all self-created to an extent i think he looked back on that went okay that's what happens when i act purely out of spite let me get back to what i do well
0: yeah you know? yeah that makes a lot of sense. Like, let me tell actual yeah, stories. And I don't,
1: think it, I don't think it was, again, I don't think it was an accident that he returned to a house story. I really think he was trying to get back to those core elements where he really kind of found a creative home. So mm-hmm. it's ama- it is amazing, just empirically, that, that those two movies are so close together. In fact, this was literally the movie that he followed Shocker with, right? I believe. Like, it was it was yeah, yeah, after. Yeah, it was like, what, three years? Um,
0: yeah. Um, yeah, and just jumping right into it. That's a really good point. Like, it's almost like that rebound relationship where you're like, okay, well, I wasn't in a great place when I made this. Yeah. Just, I wasn't, I wasn't at my best, you know. Now, now, and uh, so as a, a very pro-dog podcast... Yes. Um, you know, just, we, we're reasonable people who understand that dogs are the greatest of us. Uh, the Rottweiler in this movie, Prince, my favorite thing is movie dogs. Oh, yeah. When they need to look, like, vicious and scary, but you can still see their tails wagging <laughs> while they do stuff because they're having fun with their friends. Like, the Rottweiler that plays Prince... Um, who's the dog owned by the Robesons, who kind of does their dirty work for them and kills kids, and he's just sort of a mean Rottweiler. That dog actor is just like, they're dangling a hot dog off camera, and it's great. It is the
1: most adorable Roddy in the entire fucking Oh, world. yeah. And, and I, even as a kid, I couldn't blame the Roddy for anything. <laughs> no. Because he, he was just another a creature that they manipulated and twisted into something. And one of my, honestly, one of my favorite kind of subtle bits that you don't even really notice is prince gets killed as, as you say and it's good yeah. to warn people about that but one of my favorite bits is after that when it's kind of like the night after a bunch of shit has gone down the ropes think everything is over they've scammed the cops and got them out of their faces everything is going to go back to normal mm-hmm. and wendy uh wendy roby says uh you know tomorrow we're going to go get a new dog right. and just the way she says that like you just, from from that line and the way she delivers it, you get the whole thing that, like, they always have a dog. A dog is one of the mechanisms of control they use in the house. Mm-hmm. Which, again, dogs, like, so much symbolism oh, yeah. for the history of America and civil rights and racism and white supremacy right there. Jesus. And the way they use that dog. Mm-hmm. And, but it's just very clear that the dog was not a fan. Because the thing is, before that, they treat the dog like the dog is really genuinely a thing that they care about. Right. It's like their pet and they love it. They're nice And at the end with just that one line... Totally reveals that they completely moved on for Prince getting killed. The dog is just a mechanism of their control, and they're going to go get another one in the morning. And when that dog dies, they'll just keep replacing it because that's just the thing they do. Yep. it's a really nice subtle little bit that that is thrown in there.
0: Absolutely, like, and it does so much heavy lifting because it's like, oh, this dog is disposable because children are disposable because everybody's disposable. These are people. It's funny because, like, dogs have a weird relationship with people who are sort of predatory or abusive, like, you know, it's like the Nazis, you know, you get like, oh, sure, so-and-so might be a Nazi, but he loves right. his dog, and it's like, it this completely destructs that, like, no, no, this dog is a useful tool to these people, they don't actually care about... Anything like even terrible people who like their dog—it's like no, they like the dog because the dog does what they want it to do.
1: Yeah, it represents. It's what the dog represents. It's not any kind of meaningful connection to a living creature.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Like so, Prince, uh fool tricks um, Ed Hurley into father, excuse me, yeah. Father Robson into stabbing Prince, and it's it's upsetting. It's terrible. They try to
1: do it as tastefully as you can kill a dog in a movie, which is almost an impossible thing to do. Mm-hmm. You don't really see it. you just you think the uh, ever McGill thinks that he's killed fool. He has, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not laughing at <laughs> the dog part. I'm just remembering dancing. the other thing we haven't really covered here is that whenever McGill in this movie goes into hunter mode within the house, mm-hmm. he gets a leather suit head to toe, zipper mask, and he has a pump shotgun with a fucking bayonet. A World War Two bayonet yeah, buddy. attached to the shotgun. So he stabs <laughs> yeah, he stabs the bayonet through the wall. He thinks he's killed Fool. You see the blood in the bayonet, then you realize it's actually the dog that Fool got in between him and the blade. So Fool does not kill the dog. No. The Rosen's killed the dog. Like that is also I think an important detail there.
0: Definitely, and here he thought he'd killed fool. He was about to start hooting and hollering to cotton-eyed Joe. Seconds after, and then he realized that he stabbed his yeah, fucking dog.
1: And uh, and Wendy Roby's, like, you killed our baby. <laughs> Gosh,
0: yeah, my baby. So like Wendy Roby, she deserves a lifetime achievement award for this fucking movie. So, I
1: mean, legitimately. Legit. I will stack her performance and that movie gets anything that was nominated at the Oscars for Best Supporting Actress. Yeah.
0: Like, she knows knows what she's about. And so, it it progresses. Um, Allison realizes that she's not actually their kid and they stole her just like they stole every kid.
1: Fool reveals that to her because they formed a bond by this point. Mm -hmm. Fool comes back for Alice, which is one of the... I mean, that's the thing. Like We need to hit on that, too. Fool escapes the house.
0: Yeah, he gets out. He's the
1: only kid Everest escape the house. He gets away, end of the second act, end of the third act. He's gone. He's safe. They're never going to find him. They don't know who he is. They don't really know his name. He mm-hmm. can disappear. He comes back to the house to get Alice. Like, how fucking heroic is yeah. this kid? To he yeah. sneaks back into the house.
0: He sneaks back into the house that he'd already escaped from. He's, like, Fool is the greatest of them. Like, so he, he comes back... Um, also, Roach. Oh. Sweet Roach. Roach. Sweet baby Roach. Um, the, the boy who got his tongue chopped out because he was crying for help. Yeah. Um, and so he's nonverbal, and he is sort of presented at first to be sort of scary, I think, because that actor has, like, mouth makeup, and they use some other makeup to kind of make him look sort of like a kid who's been living in the walls of a house like he, he looks rough
1: yeah yeah definitely oh, yeah they definitely washed Yeah, they washed him out in a big way because he lives in, he literally lives in walls so it, it made sense
0: <laughs> that'll do it you know I'll like that'll to you right there yeah well it's incredible because so he's presented as, as a thing that's meant to you know scary toward fool and it's like no actually Roach is a precious baby angel
1: yes he absolutely is he's one of the best characters in a movie filled with great characters they're all great characters mm-hmm. Roach definitely always stood out to me. And that he's really the tragic hero of the movie.
0: Yeah, you know? yeah, because he he sacrifices. Yeah,
1: he does. He sacrifices himself. He gets. He takes a takes a gunshot, and yeah, he in his last act is to write Alice in the dirt for yeah. fool to let him know that he has to save Alice because Roach loves Alice. Alice has been feeding him surreptitiously for years and helping him even though he's trapped in the walls yeah and uh yeah so he's the one who kind of gives fool passes that quest on to fool to save alice from this horrible place yeah
0: (sighs) sweet baby roach it's genuinely it's it's just it's just so good beautiful it's so good um so we get to the end of the movie and one of the um is it i don't think it's is it fool's mom it's not fool's mom it's it's his sister his sister. Thank you.
1: That's what it is. It's his sister. His sister, the tarot reader, who gives him the name Fool because of the tarot card in the beginning. Mm-hmm. She's dating Ving Rhames. That's right. her boyfriend.
0: That's right. And she also played Yvonne in Nightmare Five.
1: Yes, she absolutely did. Yeah, she was in uh, the, the principal a lot of movies. And I forget the actress's name, but yeah, she was in a lot of. Stories.
0: Yeah, she's been in. She's been in like everything. She has that cool smoky voice. Very much so. Like it's so good. Um. So she knocks on the door, and uh, Mama, Mama Robson, uh opens the opens i'm not going to say the name uh opens the door and she's about to like give her the fucking business like hey you're destroying our fucking community and you have blood on your hands and you know so mama robeson slams the door and then she opens it again and she's about to drop another n-bomb and then realizes that basically her entire fucking constituency of like tenants uh have shown up en masse
1: oh yeah it ends with a protest right (laughs)
0: it it ends ends with with a fucking protest. protest Uh, like this movie like They burn the fucking building down yep. And it's great Now this is a movie um, If you haven't seen this movie Not only does the house like burn down This is a movie in which the house of rich landlords Explodes into money And it Rains
1: gold It literally rains gold coins Which fool we'll finds the big stash of gold And yeah it ends with it raining gold <laughs> And all the people who showed up to protest and burned their motherfucker down.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's right. like, Papa Robson doesn't even get to go, I found gold, and do his little prospector dance. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the house explodes, and then all of the money is the community is now fucking redistributed. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so one of the most badass moments in the movie for me is uh, Papa Robson is uh, in the basement with Fool, and he's about to shoot Fool. He's about to shoot a child. Right. And he says, kiss your ass goodbye, and calls him boy, which... Jesus Christ. Thanks, thanks, Big Ed. Yeah. We had had to fucking take it there. And then, at the end of the thing, the tables have turned, uh, and Papa Ropes and is surrounded by explosives, and, school- and Fool has the shotgun. And Fool tells him... Which, by the way, the power of a small child saying, I'm done fucking around. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so good. It's so, so good. good. Oh, my God. So I love this kid. Uh, and so he says, kiss your ass goodbye. And he... Just he uh, he starts trying to attack fool and fool just fucking blows him up. Yep. Uh, so anyway, it's a feel good movie. Yeah, no, hey. <laughs>
1: like if, you're, if you are at fool's age watching that, like you are roaring. Oh yeah. The fool by the end of the day, he is everything you wish you could be, mm-hmm. and will never get to be at that age.
0: Absolutely. Like justice has yeah. been fucking served. This child has a gun. Sometimes a child is allowed to have a shotgun
1: <laughs> so, with That's... a bayonet attached to it. <laughs> The World War II bayonet attached to it. The
0: fucking bayonet. Yeah.
1: No, but it's even, it, there's something, look, because there's even that scene where Fool finds the gold mm-hmm. and Everett McGill is hunting him through the gold hoard. It's literally like a dragon lair gold hoard. And like, yeah. Everett McGill is trying to seduce him with the wealth that mm-hmm. they've accumulated. He's like, because Fool, because ri- again, yeah, Fool's so smart. He rigs up a trap where he puts, uh, he sticks gold coins into a, into a candle. Mm-hmm. And as the candle burns down, the gold drops and makes noises. And that, Brings Everett McGill towards it to distract him. It's yeah. a great, great trap. But as that's happening and Everett McGill's hit, hearing it, he's calling out to Fool hiding and hiding him. He's trying to like convince him to embrace it. He's like, "Oh yeah, you're letting it slip through your fingers. I do that all the time." And like Fool just yeah. rejects all of this bullshit. And there's just so like there's white supremacy, there's capitalism, just fucking everything is 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 microcosmed in this house. Every America is just microcosm in this house. And it's still as relevant today as it was in 1991.
0: (sighs) I tell you what. And it's, you know, Papa Robson being like, if you just sell all of your friends out, you can share in the wealth that I have.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what it is. That's the same and just yeah. the kid
0: going nah fuck you. Yeah. Like it's absolutely not. Ah, uh, I just love this goddamn movie so much and it's one of those movies that I don't know why it's kind of not talked about more. Like I kind of get it cuz it was in that dead zone between like 1990 and 1996. Right. For horror movies, like it was, you know, the 80s had ended and then nobody really knew what was going on anymore until Scream happened. I feel like it kind of gets unfairly forgotten about a lot, but it does so many different things and it does them so well.
1: Absolutely. No, I think it is that thing of just being caught in this weird transitional period where the 80s horror wave had crashed and rolled back and then 90s horror hadn't really come in yet and it just was... And, you know, it's the truth is it's about this uh, little black kid, Brandon Adams, who never... Like, he he was a child star that never really transitioned. You know, and mm-hmm. I think him being forgotten about is is just as is, is emblematic of this movie being forgotten you know yeah in a lot of ways
0: definitely and he kills it in this so role. good he's so, so good. good
1: that kid was so talented man i remember him in a lot of stuff from like he was in moonwalker like they had him doing the michael jackson moves which oh you know, you that's don't get, right but he, was great. he was great and i know michael jackson or whatever but like he was True. so good in, in that you know he could actually do it mm-hmm.
0: yeah just being like a cool like moppet who can actually do the moves yeah. Like he's one of those kids that you look at and you're like I will never be as cool as this literal child. Yeah, live barely. Yeah, like it's it's a lot to it's a lot to live up to. All right. So looking at the list, um God damn. Uh so okay. So number 73, we have Hellraiser.
1: Uh the the OG. Yeah.
0: Yeah, first one, 1988. Uh so which which do we think is better? The People Under the Stairs? Uh or hell, or Hellra- Hellraiser. I
1: love people under the stairs, man. Just, just all around. I got to go. People under the stairs.
0: Yeah, completely agree. Also, because Hellraiser, kind of. I love that movie very, very, very much. I'm gonna get a tattoo from it. Like, I, yeah, but of it as a movie, it kind of. I don't know. There, there, are, there are bits of it where you look at it and you're like, well, it was what it was, and it was fine for the time, and they were they were trying to do something. But people under the stairs is one of those things that you go back to, and it's like about something. Absolutely. Like, I
1: think, to me, it just comes down to the thing of like. I, I'll just say it, man. Hellraiser was not aged well. I'll just find yeah. out say it. It was. It yeah. was revolutionary <laughs> in a lot of ways for its time. Mm-hmm. I have a friend, Keith Ranville. He'll tell you a two-hour-long story about seeing that for the first time and just how fucking changed he was by it. Oh and yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Same. Actually, that was one of those movies that like. Growing up for me, I had cousins who took on that role for me of just like, oh, the small kid is terrified of everything. Hey, you want to watch Hellraiser? And, you know, like, this was, I saw it at a very tender age. And, like, the image of Frank saying Jesus wept while his face is...
1: It's it's traumatic, man. Like, there's mm -hmm. trauma. Associated with that
0: movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and God bless my mom for, like, trying to keep me away from horror movies, because I was so upset all the time because of horror movies, <laughs> and just, yeah, mom mama tried. Uh, so looking at the list, I think it's better yeah. than Hellraiser. At number 57, we have Scream 2, another Wes Craven movie.
1: Oh, yeah, the... Uh... It's so weird. I don't associate the scream movies with Wes. I don't I don't know why it is. It just seems so, it's so removed from the canon of my childhood. Mm-hmm. It's Well, always- cuz it's
0: it, well, cause it's kind of Kevin Williamson, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, didn't Wes Craven he was part of that franchise though? Didn't he produce it or? Oh
0: yeah, no, he 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 uh, he directed all of them. Uh, Kevin Williamson wrote all of them except for part three.
1: Yeah. Oh no. So you're saying that's because it's more Kevin Williamson than it really is a Wes Craig. Is that the? Is that the
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Where it was sort of Kevin Williamson's aesthetic was all over it. Um, I think also. They kind of needed each other because, like Kevin Williamson on his own gave us teaching Mrs. Tingle, right. which <laughs> was it, it's you know he he needed somebody to kind of tell him that his ideas weren't all good. Hey, yeah,
1: listen, I want a bag on a Helen Mirren movie, but yes, all of the all of the. <laughs> that you said.
0: Yeah. Um. So yeah. So looking at Scream Two from uh, at number fifty-seven, I think People Under the Stairs is a better movie. Definitely.
1: definitely me I, I would have to say so um and actually like we nikki and i my wife we re-watched all the screen movies lately and i, I enjoyed them nice. a lot more than i thought i was going to that one in particular is strong. that's a that's a Mm -hmm. strong entry in the in the in the the franchise but yeah gotta go with the people under the stairs man again it just Mm -hmm. scream 2 when you watch it it feels very of a time and a place it's very trapped in that time and that place culturally and just for sure like the people under the stairs you watch it now and it's just as powerful and relevant and vibrant as it was in 1991 like more so in a lot of ways and it's just that's so hard to achieve and that movie just does achieve it so i definitely got to give people under the stairs the edge
0: yeah i'm so glad that we did these two specific movies this week (laughs) yeah for real it's been a lot of it is just it's yeah yeah so all right so i'm gonna do something terrible at number 47 we have a nightmare on elm street also west craven oh the the original
1: shit just got real right yeah yeah went there right there went there
0: fucking i'm not fucking um what do we think
1: oh wow uh a lot of that is tied up, I think, into what kind of Nightmare on Elm Street fan you are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will say that. I think that always has to be part of the conversation when you talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. And, you know, you may, be listening to this, it may not mean shit to you, but, like, that franchise means so much to me, personally. And I'll say that. Oh, it's, yeah. It, it's,
0: it's, yeah. It's perfect. Like, it's one of those series that... It's so easy to just become obsessed with. Um,
1: And Dream Warriors is one of my all-time favorite movies, just period. I think it's one of the best movies of the age. It's one of the best movies about teenagers ever made in the history of the world, in, in my opinion. Definitely. Like that movie spoke to my soul on such a level it's not even fucking funny so yeah the
0: fucking camaraderie between the kids in that movie like i kind of can't think of another movie in any medium that, or like in any other genre that makes me feel the way i feel about them absolutely
1: it's just you want to protect them and love them and the way and it's just like the, it's just found family done so beautifully the way they prop each other up and form this community yeah and they're all seen as so damaged and they've all been through their things and it's just it's so it's so great um yeah
0: i honestly i'm just gonna throw it out there i think dream warriors is better than the original nightmare no. that's, that's
1: that's kind of what i was trying to get to i just got derailed when i brought up dream Warriors. <laughs> talk about that for hours and just how yeah. that movie is all about how adults suck and oh yeah kids are actually right yeah but, yeah
0: well and honestly though i feel like dream warriors and even og nightmare on elm street both kind of have the same thing with people under the stairs of the structures in place that are meant to protect you absolutely are not looking out for you absolutely you can only depend on your fucking friends you can only look at the person next to you
1: yeah i mean well dude, og nightmare and elm you got her dad is the sheriff like he's the man in the town he can't save anyone nope the kid hang is hung in a jail sale you know like it's it, it says that's just west speaking on levels again but yeah anyway to get to get back to the original thing <laughs> For me, for me, uh-huh. um, I, I I can let OG Nightmare on Elm Street go in favor of the people in the stairs. I think it's an empirically better film. And again, has aged better than the original Nightmare on Elm Street has, I, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I think so, too. And like, I still love it, but it's... So looking a little bit up, at number 45, we have Dawn of the Dead.
1: Oh. Yeah, another deep pull. George Romero. Yeah, that's a that's a personal one for me. I I, I met him really early on my LA journey and was very inspired by oh, everything man. he'd gone through. Oh man. Um, I don't. We've gone on so long. I probably don't want to tangent into that whole thing. But,
0: <laughs> I mean, uh,
1: just okay. So just very briefly, I have to. I have to. I have to. Parash, so mm-hmm. uh, when I moved out to LA originally to to be a screenwriter in the movies and all that classical bullshit. I was so broke and starving to death that, you know, you couldn't afford to go do anything. Mm-hmm. And then me and my roommate found out you could go to L.A. Film School and see free screenings of movies if you just signed up online. Oh, shit. Like, it didn't cost anything. And they had Q&As with the with the filmmakers. It was the most amazing. It was, like, fool finding all that gold in people on <laughs> the stairs. But, but I got yeah. to take it with me. So one of the first <laughs> ones we saw was whatever the current uh, Dead movie was at the time. And they interviewed George Romero after it. And he just encapsulated that whole stage of my life, because he talked about being in development hell for 12 years, mm-hmm. and how he was like at the end of the road, and he was just trying to make money to leave his grandkids. And it was just an immensely powerful experience for me. So anything related to George Romero has a very personal connection for me. That's, that's
0: yeah, agree. Although Romero, specifically, is sort of the original horror leftist to me. Oh, yeah.
1: Absolutely. He like, a, yeah, he was a hippie. He was one of the oh, original yeah. hippies
0: he was, because you look at Night of the Loving Dead, you know, sort of, I love that you could see the trajectory of his radicalization from his filmography from going from, like, Night of the Living Dead to, like, Land of the Dead, where he's like, we must kill the rich immediately.
1: Absolutely. No, it was, yeah, that, that, those movies tell such a story about his ideology from, from period to period. You know, I'm yeah. that I'll tell you, like, Nightmare, like, the, the original uh, Dead movie, that was all about, like, post-60s We thought we changed the world, and oh shit, it didn't happen. Like it was all about that, you know. It's it's so it's so interesting to view those in a historical context. Definitely.
0: So yeah. So fuck. So dawn of the dead versus people under the stairs. Dawn of the
1: dead. Oh, man, this is actually a really tough one, because I, I actually still do do enjoy Dawn of the Dead quite a bit. Oh, me too, totally. I think, think that it holds up. It has a lot of the elements that people in the stairs do in terms of relevance to where we are now.
0: Mm-hmm. Really well, and also it has, to me, this thing of, like, I want these people to be okay. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Absolutely. Like, when you've got... The two cops who are, like, husbands, basically, in Dawn of the Dead, they just love each other so goddamn much. And, you know, when one of them gets bitten, the other one is so fucking tender and he's taking care of his buddy.
1: And just, yeah, Ken Forey just, like, facilitating date nights. Oh, yeah. Just so cool. And, like, no no, no so ulterior motive at all. Just, like, trying to be, just being a cool dude. No,
0: yeah. You know? Like, he's just trying to give his friends a nice time. Like, you deserve this, please.
1: Yeah this is a fucking waiter mm-hmm. and then just like when he when he has that moment where he goes and he's just being by himself while they're doing their thing right and, you know his buddy has been bitten and he's fucking dying and yeah that stuff is so powerful oh and the mm-hmm. scene where he uh when Tom Savini's gang is is raiding the mall oh yeah and that even the scene just the moment when he divests himself of everything he's acquired in the mall and puts back on his like SWAT uniform yep that it's, just always yeah. resonated with me. It's like he's leaving stacks of cash on the bed and the gold Rolex, and he's suiting back up. And just, and just yeah. the, the symbolism While that is so good. So good.
0: Matt, I love horror so much. I do
1: too, Ryan. Horror really is the
0: do. best. It's just, it's so good. It's
1: just everything. And it doesn't get enough credit for it, because it is. It is everything. It's mm-hmm. everything you could want from any kind of story. You can find that in horror. It really does yeah. like absolutely so much.
0: Yeah, it's all, of, it's all of the elements from other stories just, like, turned up to 11 and given huge stakes. Yeah,
1: and all of those elements can coexist with each other, and then horror doesn't try to apologize for it or rationalize it. It's just like, yeah, this is what it is. It's like, it's everything. Yeah. It's, it's experience.
0: Completely. Well, and uh, I feel like people under the stairs... I feel like you couldn't totally do a story like that in a non horror genre. No,
1: that's the other thing about it. It really gives you a lot of license that the stigma and the perception of a lot of other genre doesn't. That's mm-hmm. why you see. I mean, get out. You know, we get we get into that, jump into that right away from that point. Like oh, yeah, you can do so much in that context that. You won't be allowed to do with any with any of the other stories because of the expectations involved,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, where you can fly under the radar and do it for it's, it's an amazing. Well, advantage.
0: and as you know, there's so much freedom in genre oh, yeah. to <laughs> fucking get away with some real shit. Um, so yeah, so actually, so looking at the list, I I think I'm I feel confident saying a thing, and tell me tell me if I'm wrong here. So at number 45 is Dawn of the Dead. Right above that is Evil Dead Two. Mm. And Evil Dead 2 is a movie that, to me, was so fucking instrumental in terms of filmmaking, where it's just, it's Sam Raimi inventing filmmaking fucking techniques. Absolutely,
1: absolutely. I give total credit to Evil Dead 2. The, the thing that I will say is, I genuinely believe, when you back away from it, Evil Dead 2 is more seminal than it is good. Yeah, right?
0: yeah. Yeah. Completely agree. Like it's not a, it's not a good movie. It's important, but it's not good. So I feel like it's in that for, by those terms not as good as people under the stairs.
1: I totally will, will agree with that. Like between the two there's no question which I'd rather watch right now.
0: Friday night test, yeah. So right above Evil Dead 2 is the Stepford Wives.
1: Oh, the uh, the William Goldman. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. The 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 original uh, Stepford Wives. I feel like that movie is... I can't even believe I'm going to say this. I think Stepford Wives might be better than People Under the Stairs? I mean,
1: it's... Like, that story has a lot in it. There's definitely a lot more there than a lot of the other ones that we're talking about. Um,
0: Well, and also because, like, so much of it is, like, *Iron 11 in terms of, like, world building. Right. Uh, the way Stepford Wives unfolds and twists and the way you find everything out, like, because, like, once once the jig is up and yeah. you figure out what the plot is, like, it's one of those reveals, because, like, I feel like there's different kinds of reveals, and this is an of course right. reveal where, like, everything makes sense, and it unfolds in a way that... It's yeah, it's so satisfying, and I really really love that movie. I would be tempted to put people under the stairs above Evil Dead Two but below stepford wyatts I think
1: I can get there. I think um I think that makes that makes sense and is and is fair
0: but do you do you have an argument to make about people under the stairs being above it?
1: I mean it, you know you can get into subjective stuff all day i um I do feel like Stepper Wives has lost some potency just viewing it in the lens of time because it's mm-hmm. hard to come to that yeah. without knowing what ste- what Stepper Wives are at this point. Mm-hmm. It's become such a such a cultural kind of touchstone and almost a parody of itself. Like, if you watch the yeah. update they did, it, it literally is a parody of itself.
0: Yeah. Oh boy, that fucking remake. It's like Starship Troopers levels of we're just going to yeah. dial this all the way up.
1: But at the same time, I I do remember seeing that for the first time, not knowing anything about it. And if you can do that, that's an immensely powerful uh, movie.
0: Yeah. I can't even imagine being able to, like, watch The Stafford Wives and just, like... It makes
1: such a difference. It makes such a difference. I, I totally see showing that to people who just already know all about the whole, the whole trope and the whole story and everything. Mm-hmm. And them not taking anything from it. But if you could go into that at the right time without all those preconceived notions and knowledge... It knocks you for a fucking loop in so many ways.
0: Yeah, I fu- I fucking bet. So yeah, so I I feel pretty good about putting, uh, people under the stairs from nineteen ninety one uh, below Stepford Wives, but above Evil Dead Two at number forty four.
1: I feel like top fifty of all time. Good, good place for it.
0: I feel. I, I think so too. I think so too. Uh, Matt. Uh, where can our listeners find you on the internet and now this is also obviously this episode is part of your uh, online tour do you want to talk about that?
1: It is we are or will be when this is released at the time of recording it hasn't even started yet just to break k no. but at the, when you oh, listen no. to this um, <laughs> I should have just started my Join the Savage Rebellion tour which is a totally online book tour that I'm doing because the time of COVID mm-hmm. I want everybody to be safe so mm-hmm. I'm doing it all virtually It's a a book tour I'm doing in support of my debut epic fantasy novel, Savage Legion, which comes out on July 21st. And this is the second stop, right? Second stop on the tour. Because I just couldn't wait
0: to Oh, shit. That's, that's, oh, I I feel genuinely really honored.
1: That's legit. I just wanted to share
0: that. Oh, that's honestly, now, and, and it's funny because when, so I've been wanting to have you on the podcast for such a long time that when the prospects of you being on came up, the question of like, wait, which fucking movie am we actually gonna do <laughs> but like comically I feel like if we're talking about like the footnotes that you and I have had for talking about the movies we've been talking about I think we might have actually comprehensively covered the entirety of horror for the last 50 years <laughs> I was like,
1: Ryan I'll, I'll tell you quite honestly I've done a lot of podcasts in the last 15 or so years having started actually, at the actual birth of podcasting Oh, well. I could sit here with you and record this podcast forever. I really could.
0: Ah, that's yeah. Honestly, uh, this was thank you, thank you once again so much for being on. It was just, and spe- specifically for doing these specific movies. Like, I'm so glad we got to do this. Um, Rank and Vile uh, listeners, you can find us uh, as ever on uh, Twitter, uh, permanently and abidingly shit posting at Rank and on uh, Instagram and Tumblr at just rank and If you have any movies that you really want us to talk about, or you maybe want to curse our fucking hearts for putting people under the stairs above Evil Ted 2, <laughs> uh, you're gonna want to send that uh, over to Cast oh, at Gmail <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you're gonna send that to Cast at gmail.com. Uh, but barring that, that is about all I got. Matt, once again, uh, thank you so much for being on.
1: Thanks for having me on, Ryan. I really enjoyed it.
0: Later, folks, have a good week.